Well, please take your copy of the Bible and turn with me to the 14th chapter of the book of Acts. And you may or may not have seen this when you came in, but we do have a sermon outline right on that table back there if you like to view that. Uh, for those of you viewing online, I'm sorry I don't have a map for you. We're still working out some bugs of how to get those slides up for you. And Lord willing, in the coming weeks, we will be able to do that. I'd also make a, a mention of an announcement. Uh, beginning next Sunday, we will be offering an additional Sunday school class. It's a family-style Baba study that will be meeting in the basement. So at 9 o'clock, uh, we're going to have Jared and Lori Winkle will be providing the, the leadership here. Jared will be teaching more the students and the parents. Lori, the same lesson, same content to our preschool and elementary age children, and then families will be able to discuss that and hash that out in a round table. So we're excited to provide a family format and try that during this summer. I think you would probably agree with me that often the hardest things in life are the most rewarding. If you think of a, a mother giving birth to a child, and maybe that child a few years later learning the importance of practice for a recital. Or maybe a student, as they are working through their years and they're particularly skilled in the athletic sport, and so they, they offer sacrifice for their diet and, and free time in order to secure that college scholarship. For me, I wasn't a natural student, so the hard work was very rewarding when I graduated college. Maybe there's a, a home project or an, a car project that you would admit, this thing is way over my head. But with humility and some research and asking for some help, you come up with a solution on how to fix that car, work on that house project, and how satisfying it is to know that you've saved a lot of money in the process. And think with me about the most valuable, most precious relationships that you have right now. Are they not the result of hard work, of hard conversations, of extending forgiveness and grace to them? Well, what we will see in our passage today is the hard work of going out and sharing the gospel. And we are going to see another level of opposition that comes from that. But hopefully by the end of this passage and this message, we'll see that this hard work paid off. And this hard life led to a rewarding life as we see four churches planted during the first missionary journey. So let's return now to Acts chapter 14. If you have a map or you have a map in your Bible I think it could be helpful to know that there are two different Antiochs here in our passage. There's the Antioch of Syria. And we read about how in that home church last week, after a prayer meeting, Paul and Barnabas and, and John Mark were sent out to Cyprus. And there they shared the gospel, not too much of a response. They moved to Cyprus to the next city, Perga, and then from there to the this Antioch in Poseidon, and they were chased out of there. And if you have a map, then you'll see that there are three more cities that make up this 
first missionary journey. We'll cover these three this morning. It is Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. So let's look here at Acts chapter 14, and let's begin by reading verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. This is not new to us. As we've been reading through the book of Acts, we see that there is a particular strategy that these Christians have. They go to the house of worship, a synagogue, a place in which the Old Testament scriptures are read out loud. And Paul and Barnabas sit through what we would call a worship service. And at the conclusion of that worship service, it was customary for the rabbi to say, we have some out-of-town guests. I wonder if one of you would like to bring a word of encouragement. And then they would get up, and Paul would would quote from the Old Testament. And before long, he would weave into how the Old Testament pointed to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And how the people in that synagogue needed to repent of their sins and place their faith in what Jesus has done. That's what we see here in Iconium in chapter 14, verse 1. And it says here that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So far, the missionary effort there in Iconium is off to a fabulous start. But then we see in verse 2, But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. This too is not unusual. The gospel goes forward. There are people that we see receiving it. And then there is this division. There are people that come in and now they are poisoning the minds. They feel threatened by this message of the gospel. And they don't want others to receive it. So they make up lies and and twist it to get people not to become followers of Jesus. I put myself in Paul and Barnabas' shoes I think I have a a sense often of how people are are responding to me. And I think I would pick up, you know what? These people don't want us here. They they are rejecting this message. And I think it's it's time to to move. But you'll notice what their response here in verse 3 is. So they remained there a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Instead of running at the first sign of trouble, Paul and Barnabas say, we are here for the gospel. And there is opposition to the gospel. We must stay here and work this out and to disciple these people. And so throughout each of these places where they'll stop, there is a temptation that they will need to overcome. And in Iconium, they overcome the threat of intimidation. There's this murmuring of these people are here to share this gospel. Let us get them out. But they remain there for a long time and they speak boldly the words of the gospel. And you'll see that it's there accompanied, verse 3, by signs and wonders. God is blessing their efforts. This week I read of Jonathan Wesley, this, this great Bible preacher, the father of the Methodist church. 
It wasn't unusual for him too to face opponents of the gospel. And there was one bully in particular that everyone knew who was against Jonathan Wesley and his message. And one evening they were traveling on the same dirt road with their horse and carriage. The bully coming in this direction, Wesley going in the opposite direction. And as they both identified who one another is, Jonathan Wesley graciously pulled off to the side, allowing the bully to pass. And when the bully pulled up right up next to Jonathan Wesley, he looked down at the man and he says, I never pull over for fools. To which the wee little man, five foot two, Jonathan Wesley looked up and said, I always do. He was not intimidated. And neither were Paul and Barnabas. They would continue with their effort. Read a little bit further here in verse 4. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some sided with the apostles. Let's just pause for a moment here. Because you see the word apostles. Is Barnabas an apostle? We might get hung up here. It is identifying Paul and Barnabas as an apostle. But you know there are two different ways of looking at apostles. There are the 12 apostles. Those that ministered alongside Jesus were there for the resurrection. But the word apostle actually just means sent out or missionaries. And so we see this word used of Paul and Barnabas not only in verse 4, but also in verse 14. It's just referring to these missionaries that have been sent out from the church of Antioch. It says here that the city was now divided. Verse 5, when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with the rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. One commentary said, there is a predictable pattern in the book of Acts. You'll see these four different things happen. The first is preaching. Paul, or one of the Christians, will come in and will preach the gospel. This will lead to the second phase, and that is that of division. The gospel does divide. And then the third step that we see is that of opposition, where there'll be a rising up of opponents that stand against the gospel, and that will lead to the fourth step, which is growing. So let me give that to you again. Preaching, dividing, opposing, and growing. I've gone to a lot of pastor's conferences, many who get up and they speak on church growth, but I've never heard anyone share that four-step process. Preaching, dividing, opposing, growing. But that's what we see here in Iconium. There was this preaching, and now the city was divided. And you know the gospel will divide, will it not? Listen to what Jesus said. Do you think I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against daughter, against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Some of you have had this experience. The gospel has been declared to you. You've learned of how God is good, and he is righteous, he is holy, 
And you are a sinner. And you have nothing within you that would make you right with God. You are on your way to a fiery pit called an eternal hell. And in God's mercy, he sends Jesus to you. And he is your only hope. There is no good works. There is no religious activity that will get you to be right with God. And so you humble yourself and receive the gift of the substitutionary death of Jesus and the empty tomb. And then you proclaim this message to others. Your family members, your good friends, and there is a division that takes place. I can think of my childhood when my dad became a a Christian later in life. He was always a part of a softball team. And you know what happened in time is no one would ask him to play softball because he would share his faith. And so there was a division. But this division then leads to an opposition where they hear Paul and Barnabas that people are actually uprising and they're going to threaten to stone them so they, they leave town. They are courageous, but they are not stupid. I think it was Kent Hughes that says they were born again. They weren't born yesterday. And so they leave Iconium. This leads us to the second city. If you had your map, you could look over at the second city in verse 8, and that is of Lystra. So let's read the first few verses here of Lystra. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and never had walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand up! upright on your feet, and he sprang up and began walking. This story is familiar to us of Acts chapter 3. But instead of Paul doing the healing, Peter does the healing there in Acts 3. In fact, there are a few different phrases that are almost identical. There is a phrase that this man was crippled from birth, And there was also this phrase of Paul or or Peter looking intently at the man. And there's, there's an insight here that Peter looked at the man and saw that he had enough faith that he could be healed. Now, honestly, I don't have that insight. I can't look out this morning and say, you know what? You're really listening to me and God's going to do a great work in your, in your life. I don't, but, but, Peter or Paul did here in this passage. Now there's a little background I should offer to you about this city of Lystra. You'll notice that Paul and Barnabas did not go to a synagogue there in Lystra. Evidently there wasn't one. It was not a city known for Jewish people. But if you know the name Timothy, first and second Timothy, Timothy is from this town. Here is a little fable or legend that was known in Lystra. Uh, Many, many years ago, Hermes and Zeus, these mythological gods, had visited Lystra. And all they wanted to do was to, to visit and have hospitality with some of the citizens of Lystra. And so they knocked from door to door and said, Can we stay with you? Can we eat with you? But one by one, these gods were rejected. And so they continued to knock, and then finally they knocked on the door of one Philemon and Bosius. 
That is not the same Philemon of the New Testament, by the way. This old couple freely welcomed them and offered a feast. And although this was a meager, humble home, the gods appreciated the hospitality. In appreciation, the gods transformed the small little cottage into a temple and making the couple a priest and a priestess. And when they died, they were immortalized with a great oak and a great linden tree. The inhospitable homes, however, were destroyed. And so when the citizens of Lystra observed Paul healing this man, their mind went back to this legend. And they said, we are not going to make that mistake. So let us read here the next couple of verses. Verse 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus. Evidently he had a distinguished look like Zeus. And Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. He was the messenger. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Saul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness." Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. Reflecting back on this legend, they said, here it is, Zeus and Hermes, they are visiting us again. This time, we will not make the mistake of being inhospitable. We will go and we will offer sacrifices and we will worship them. Well, in Iconium, there was the temptation of the threat of intimidation. But here in Lystra, there is a second temptation, and that is the resisting the danger of pride. They were being flattered. Look at what you've accomplished here, Paul. You are so wonderful. Allow us to worship you. And can this not still happen today? Perhaps you have sensed the Lord's leadership in, in offering hospitality yourself or to teach a lesson or to sing a song. And God used you to minister to people. And as you reflect on that and you receive accolades and praise, it is, it is natural for us just to receive that as our own. But you'll notice Paul and Barnabas' response. I am struck by it. It says there in verse 14, they tore their garments. Now, if you're new to the Bible, this might be strange to you, but there are many places throughout the Scriptures where people tore their garments. It was often done to express anguish or mourning. There was a brother of Joseph named Reuben, and when he found that found out that Joseph was sold to slave traders, 
he responded by tearing his garment. Joseph's dad, Jacob, when he found out news and he thought that his son was dead, he tore his garment. King David, when he heard of Saul and Jonathan dying, he tore his garment. Elisha, when he heard of his, the man that he looked up to, Elijah, had been taken up into heaven, he tore his garment. Job, when he lost everything, tore his garment. And so when Paul and Barnabas are seeing how this worship is being misplaced to man rather than God, their response to that was to tear their garments out of anguish and saying, this is not right. There is only one who deserves this glory, and it is God alone. Just two chapters ago in Acts chapter 12, we heard about Herod, this Herod Agrippa, who, who received the glory of man, but would not deflect it to God. And as a result, God struck him dead. This is a big deal. And during this test, this temptation, Paul and Barnabas pass as if they say, this is not worship for us. It is to be the worship of the Creator. And then they go into a message. You saw it there in verses 15, 16, and 17. And you'll notice that they don't quote the Old Testament. Why is that? Because they are not speaking to Jews. Paul understands the crowd there that day. He understands the setting. And he's about ready to bring the gospel message to them. So he begins with creation. He speaks of the wonderful creation. And he is directing their attention to the God of that creation. He, he refers to the blessings of the harvest and the satisfying of our hearts of food and gladness. And he's about ready to draw that back to a person. And then he's going to get into the Jesus and the need to be forgiven of sins. But before he can even do that, they are rushed by a crowd because they're trying to offer sacrifices to them. And then we see something dramatic in verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. You want to talk about a crowd changing on a dime. On a moment, they were worshiping, preparing to offer sacrifices to him, and then the crowd from the previous cities where they had served had now come, took time off from work, vacation time in order to disrupt the gospel message and they quickly had swung the crowd to the point where now they wanted to kill Paul can you think of another time where that happened think of Palm Sunday where people are crying out Hosanna to our Lord as he rides in on a donkey or colt then just a matter of days there the same people are crying out crucify him crucify him so here we see now that they are literally picking up rocks and they are throwing them at Paul. And this isn't the only stoning that we see in the book of Acts, is it? And Paul was present for the other one as well. He was present when Stephen was being stoned. In fact, he approved of it. We might wonder ourselves, did he think about that as the rocks were being thrown at his head? This stoning was so severe, verse 20 says, or verse 19, it says, they supposed that he was dead. 
Some Bible teachers, those who study the Bible, have suggested that perhaps this setting here is what led to that vision that Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Let me read to you verses 2, 3, and 4 of that chapter. Paul wrote of himself when he said, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up in the paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And then he says this, And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. There was a time in Paul's ministry where he caught a glimpse of heaven. And it was so wonderful that he could not, he could not put them into words. Which, which, if I could just make a little segue here for a moment. If Paul, having been in heaven, could not put that into a description of words, why would we think other people could as well and write books on it and make movies on it? I think we ought to have a, a, a healthy caution about that genre of books or even movies. Paul was there and he says, I cannot even utter what I observed. It is possible. It is possible that he had an experience there in heaven as a result of the stoning. I'm not sure of that. I, I literally don't know. I don't know how anyone could know. But I have asked myself the question all week, what led to this stamina of Paul to continue the gospel ministry in such hard circumstances? And it could be a glimpse of heaven went a long way. To see how magnificent it was. To say, I want to take as many people there as I possibly can. And so we see from that, verse 20, when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. So if you're following this, he got up and he returned to the same city in which the people had just stoned him. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 17, he says, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. It could be that some of those marks were around his head from the rock party that happened right there on top of his head. Suddenly we go to the third part, which is that of Derby, And it's there where he must preach despite the baggage of obstacles. I read about another preacher, um, not nearly as long ago as, as the Apostle Paul, but he too experienced, experienced some amazing resistance. It was said of this pastor um, in a book by Dave Howard, in his book, The Power of the Holy Spirit, he tells of this pastor in Colombia whose name was Lepacaro Taba. One Sunday, Taba was preaching from his pulpit when a man appeared at a side window of the church. He aimed a pistol at him and ordered him to stop preaching. The congregation, seeing the danger, dove to the floor and hid under the pews. Taba, however, went right on preaching the gospel. The man then fired four shots at him. Two shots went right past the preacher's head, one on one side and one on the other, and lodged in the wall behind him. Two shots went past his body, one under one arm and one went under the other arm, and lodged into the wall. The would-be assassin then dropped his gun and fled. 
Taba, still unmoved, continued his sermon. So we see the same sort of tenacity existing here in the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. Let us go. Let us move on to the next city. There in verse 21, Derby, where we see that people are responding to the gospel again. Now, if you look at the map, you'll see that next to Derby is a town just to the east called Tarsus. It doesn't look all that far, does it? Who is from Tarsus? Paul. And if ever there were a time to say, you know what? I think I've had enough. We're we're at the close of our missionary journey. Let me head on back and let me experience some comfort and some healing. But Paul and Barnabas were not about just trying to gather converts. It was about gathering disciples that could form a church. So they actually retraced their steps And they returned to each of these cities that they had visited, except for the island of Cyprus. And they go back to disciple. Let's read about a description of that. It says there in verse 21, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. It wasn't enough just to share the gospel and say you are on your own. They actually returned to each of these places, even Lystra where he was stoned. And they would firm up their faith. And so you see a few of these phrases. They encouraged them in the faith. The word faith here is a noun, not a verb. It speaks of a collection of teaching. We would use the word doctrine. That when they would return back to these churches, they'd have to give them some basic elementary understanding of the gospel, of who God is, of who man is, of what Jesus has done, of how they had to repent and believe in this. They would stay there and do that. The word encouraging is a wonderful word. It implies that they had some courage, but they needed that courage strengthened. It's the idea of, I'm going to stay with you, but then I'm going to eventually walk away, and you're going to have to put this stuff into practice. Just a couple of days ago, our family was up north with some other families from church. And there we were uh, camping and boating and swimming and fishing. And so I had a few of the boys and we'd take the the poles out. And there on the dock, there were more bluegills than you could imagine. And as soon as that worm and hook went in the water, quickly they struck and they would bring them out. Well, eventually I said to one of the boys, This is your responsibility. I'm going to teach you how to do this, but it is your responsibility to bait your own hook and to take your own fish off. I'll be here to help you if you have trouble, but eventually you got to take ownership and do this. And that's what was taking place there in the church. We're going to be with you for a little bit more. We're going to teach you this gospel and the faith, but eventually we're going to pull back and we're moving on to the next city and you are on your own. So that was the encouraging them. But you also notice in verse 23, they needed leaders within that local church. So they appointed elders. And this is also a pattern that we see in the early church. 
you'll notice that it's not elder singular, but it is elder plural. Later, we'll see some of these epistles in which they they lay out the qualifications of an elder or a pastor or a shepherd. They would be responsible for providing spiritual insight, teaching, and shepherding the church. This must have been intense discipleship. Because over the course of a year or two, they would do all of this first missionary journey. So they would identify leaders, they would equip them, and then they would turn them loose. And then the last part here says that they committed them to the Lord. Listen, men and women of the church, we've been with you all this time, but now we need to go back home. This is your church. This is Jesus. He is the head of the church. And now elders, leaders, you're responsible to lead here. Incidentally, you probably remember we are looking at this office of elders here at Highland Crest. We are looking at, is there something we ought to be gleaning here? Why is there this plurality of elders? And yet, in so many churches, there's just a, a senior pastor. So I'm hoping as a goal for 2020 to, to establish a team to look at this office of elders where we would have plurality of leadership because we see it clearly in the book of Acts. We haven't seen it. This is not the first time we see it, and we'll see it again next week in Acts chapter 15 as well. And then finally, they return back to Antioch. This is Antioch of Syria. Verse 24, it says, Then they passed through Poseidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word of Perga, they went down to Attilia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. Verse 27, And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they arrived all that God they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. They offered this report to the home church. They began at this church in Antioch and now they return. And they share all the stories of going out and sharing the gospel with these various cities. Those who received and those who rejected. And they celebrate this idea that the gospel is not only for the Jews, but it is also for the Gentiles. Some Bible teachers believe that at verse 28, that is the setting where the first epistle, Galatians, is written. Because Paul had just been in Galatia. And he hears about false gospel that has already emerged, and he is writing a letter to address that. So as we look at these 28 verses here in Acts 14, let me just give you one concluding remark. The gospel life is a hard and rewarding life. We see these men that are serious about, let us take this gospel message to the ends of the earth. And yes, they faced opposition. There was division. There were people that chased them out of town. But what did they have to show for it? Four churches. Scores of people that were no longer going to hell, but would be going to heaven for their eternity. I think if Paul and Barnabas were here today, they'd say, yes, the gospel life is hard, but it is also rewarding. I'd like you to look with me at another passage as we wind this down, and that is in 2 Timothy. 
2 Timothy chapter 3. Why don't you turn with me in your Bible there. I mentioned earlier in our message that Timothy was from Lystra, the city in which Paul was stoned. Timothy was from there. And he would become a very useful minister to Paul's service. And there in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, verses 10, 11, and 12, he's going to reflect on the events of Acts 14. Look with me here at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Look at verse 11. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Timothy, you were there. I was in your hometown. You observed this. And then he says this in verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Straight from the man who experienced that persecution himself. If we are serious about the Great Commission, we would expect there to be division and opposition and pushback. I would remind you of what Jesus said at the conclusion of the Great Commission. Yes, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. But verse 20 concludes with this, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This Savior whom we serve, it is said of, of in Hebrews 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. There are things that we will need to endure in order to experience that lasting joy. And this gospel that you and I have received not only blesses us with Jesus' presence, but he has equipped us. Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You've received all that you need to fulfill what God has called you to. He has empowered you. Galatians 2 verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then we can just look to the church. We can see in this passage that Paul did not do this alone, nor Barnabas did they do this alone, but there was a team and how much they must have celebrated when they returned to the home church. And how encouraging it must have been, not only for Paul and Barnabas, but for that local church. You see, we see in this a pattern. I think this is what a New Testament church is supposed to look like, is that there are people that are called out and go. I think this ought to be one of our prayers, Highland Crest. It's been, it's been a while that we would see men, women raised up and say, I want to go out on the mission field. But as we look back to the church, the DNA of the church, this is what they did. The hard life 
is the rewarding life. And I wonder this week, as we just wrap this message down and, and Ms. Sharon comes and plays in preparation for a prayer time, what is it you would say in your life is hard, that is requiring sacrifice of you? I think it'd be really encouraging for each of us to be able to leave church today to know that we've been prayed for. We've been able to say, here's something going on in my life right now that I would say is hard, and I could really use God's grace in my life. So what I'd like us to do is just turn this into a prayer meeting as we conclude this message. And for you to be able to find someone, um, and if you can maintain some healthy distance, that would be appropriate. I think it's best for adult women to get with adult women, adult men to get with adult men, and, and just to pray. If you're here with your spouse, here with your family, it's most natural for you to pray with one another. But just ask, what is, what is in your life right now that is hard, that you need God's grace in? And let's just take some time and pray for that. It could be that God is allowing you to experience something difficult right now to bring you to humility, that you would become a follower of Jesus and cry out for that grace. And if so, I would encourage you to do that. Well, let's take some time right now. Let's just pray together. Ask what's hard in your life and allow someone to pray with you. Father, we thank you for your mercy over our lives. And we look at a passage like this and we can look at our lives and say, I haven't had rocks thrown at me this week. we see you are you are working in the midst here of Paul and Barnabas and you are working in our midst as well here in the auditorium as well as at home thank you for drawing us to yourself for bringing us to places of of fresh awareness of dependence on you thank you that You've given to us the blessings we need. Help us to cry out to you, to sustain us in our weakness. May we not give in and may we not give up, but but say, I need you today. Help me today. What you have called me to do has been possible for me. You will have to accomplish it through your power in my life. And then may we trust you in doing just that. It's through Christ who has made this possible.